Do you think your camera crisis is solvable, Dan? Yeah, I'm just looking for a setting. I don't know why remember, it's not up automatically. Remember the first time that like I did it? I didn't know how to do anything. You got camera, but no audio was your big downfall. Yeah, that was your favorite. Your favorite. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of the Prestige-ish Media Podcast. In this episode, we will be covering True Detective Season 1, Episode 1, The Long, Bright, Dark. Please note in this episode, we may have spoilers for Episodes 1 and 2. I'll be your host for this episode, Craig Lake. Co-hosting with me will be Jessica Z and Dan McNair. You can find our show at Prestige-ish Media on Instagram and Prestige underscore Ish on X. You can find me at Real Real Batman on both. You can find Jessica Z at Jobless Dog Bomb and Dan McNair at Dan McNair 1017, both on Instagram. We hope you will join us for coming episodes as we cover True Detective seasons one through three on the way to the season four premiere on January 14th on HBO, which we will also be covering. Now, without further ado, here's the episode. Welcome to the Prestige-ish Media Podcast. My name is Craig Lake, and I will be co-hosting this episode with Jessica Z. Jessica, how are you doing today? Great, Craig, as always. How are you? Good. And we also have a special co-host today and for this season of True Detective. We have Dan McNair with us. Dan, how are you doing today? I'm awesome. Giddy up. So in this season, as mentioned, we'll be covering True Detective Season 1. In this episode, we'll be covering Episodes 1 and 2. There will be spoilers on Episodes 1 and 2 in this episode, but we will try not to spoil anything else, as Dan, maybe like some of you, has not seen the show before. What's your relationship to True Detective, Dan? You haven't watched it all. Did you ever have a desire to watch it, or how was this being your first time watching the show? It was on my radar way back when, and I just never picked it up. I'm not a huge Matthew McConaughey fan, and I'm a so-so Woody Harrelson fan. So, you know, it was nothing that really grabbed me. But if I could throw out a question to you guys, just to kind of get the feel for where you are with the cast, if you were in a bar and Matthew McConaughey was at one end and Woody Harrelson at the other, Based on their like body of work and public persona, who would you hang out with? Well, Jessica is a known Matthew McConaughey fan. Okay, uh, not really his personality, just his body. So oh. Are you? Were, were, I'm like are young you, Matthew McConaughey, not even old. Aren't you like barely allowed to watch the show? If we're being honest, don't you have oh, to like sneak around? My husband was so jealous because I saw him in this movie that was like his first lead role back in I don't know the nineties or something, and I was like, oh my god, he's so I couldn't believe he used to be hot, so hot. And then my husband's like, you can stop talking about it now. And then I picked out a Matthew McConaughey something to watch the next week later. And he was like, oh, you would want to watch that. I'm not watching anything with Matthew McConaughey with you. That definitely answers the question. I'm curious what the movie was, though. Was it like Dazed and Confused or A Time to Kill? A Time to Kill was the one that I watched where he looked really hot. Okay. 
Craig now, hasn't seen before, it. Before, I've seen Dazed and Confused, but not a time to kill, I don't think, yet. Before I answer, I want to hear your answer to that, Dan. What is your McConaughey and Woody walk into a bar? Yeah, I for McConaughey, I put him kind of in the George Clooney category of kind of smug and gets a lot of credit but hasn't really done anything that I've gravitated to. Woody, I don't know how he gets in some of the stuff that he does. I think he's kind of the Denzel of white trash, where it's like, (laughs) we need a bumpkin. And Woody just always gets the role. But he's been in some interesting things, so I would gravitate towards him because I don't think I'm necessarily schmoozy enough to be riding around in a Lincoln with McConaughey. I was gonna I was gonna say you're more of a shabby guy. <laughs> well yes. I was I was gonna say though McConaughey or Woody Harrelson, I think you could get that side of him where he would be a good time, but it also seems like you're more likely to get him in a not a good time mood as well. Where I think McConaughey, even if he was in a bad mood, he might try to pretend like he's tolerating you. But my, but my first exposure to Woody Harrelson was the movie Kingpin. I think that's what it was called. <laughs> and that was like who Woody Harrelson was to me for a long time. Yeah, I guess everybody has their own Woody, right? Mine is maybe Cheers Woody's or White Men Can't Jump Woody. He was in Who's... Cheers, like the show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who's your premier Woody, Dan? When you yeah, think it'd of probably him. be Cheers, but it just boggles my mind that he turns up in Star Wars and the Hunger Games. And he's basically the same guy. It's not like he changes his voice or his mannerisms, but it's okay. Well, here's a bumpkin in space and, you know, here's a bumpkin in the future and it's good old Woody. Well, I will say this before we get too far into it. I mean, I think these guys are their roles. They're both cast as who they are. Like, I can't think of a more Matthew McConaughey role than this. And for that matter, I mean, it's pretty much a, a premier Woody He does role, seem like a weird guy, right? Like someone that you wouldn't want to hang out with all the time. No? So, yeah, I think the persona is like the partier at the, at the Texas game for Matthew McConaughey. But so this is just what I was like approaching the TV show with. But now... You know, after watching the first two episodes, I do have, now I view them as their characters rather than just these personas that I knew them as before watching the show. So that's just kind of how I wanted to preface it. Gotcha. No, I can see that. And I wasn't, I I would say I went into the show originally not being a big Matthew McConaughey fan. And I've generally liked Woody. So that's kind of how I came into it. Jessica, when did you watch the show originally? When I first moved back to New York, I don't know, 2021. Okay, so you watched it later. You binge watched it all together, generally, right? Yeah. And I think I binged it all the day the season finale aired. So I watched it basically all in in one or two days, but when it originally came out. So that's kind of how we're coming into this. So whether you've seen it before or you're new to the show, we should have a little bit of something for everybody I thought one thing I think is interesting about the show is I think this is kind of the beginning of prestige TV taking another leap. Like this is right when, you know, there's been limited series and and made for TV movies and all these different things throughout history. But I think this was really 
at a point in time where I think Breaking Bad was probably towards its finale or just past that, and this show was coming into its own. So I do think it's pretty important for its role in kind of changing how TV was made. Episode one is The Long, Bright, Dark. It was directed by Carrie Fuganaga. He was a co-writer on it. He was the director of Beasts of No Nation and 007 No Time to Kill. The sole writer and showrunner for this is Nick Pizzolatto. He was an author prior to this. I think he had a show, The Killing. In, in that show, he was not a showrunner, and so he kind of exited that show and wanted to be the sole writer and showrunner on this show. Intro song was Far From Any Road, The Handsome Family. We start out in a dark field, with what I guess, that first scene that we see, that's the actual killing that we see in the first episode, right? Of like the deer lady or the antler lady. I think that's him like carrying her out into the field. Is that what we think's happening? Yeah, he lights the fire, right? Yeah. Did, did Was that your understanding, Dan? Is that like the murder that we first saw or were you sure of that? You know, I was just trying to catch up with the imagery because... I didn't really know what was going on, to be honest with you. But when they later revisit it, yeah, I'm figuring that, okay, what we were seeing was him torching the cane field or whatever it was to kind of be part of whatever ritual he was doing. We're going into this show with really no expectations. Were you surprised that you got the two time lapse of the present time and then the past time in the show? What were your thoughts on that? That took me a minute to catch up to. So I felt like in real time, I was trying to process everything really quick. Even one of Woody's first lines, I think, is you don't choose your parents and your partners. Yeah. He says something to that effect. And I was thinking of like a romantic partner, not in terms of, oh, this guy's a cop and a detective. And it was laying the groundwork for that relationship. So I'm like course correcting. Oh, that's not what he was talking about. Just like really quickly trying to get up to speed. Did you remember the time switch, Jessica? And what did you think about jumping from previous to present time in the show? Yeah, no, the first time it took me like a minute, you know, you know how that <laughs> yeah. happened. The, the only thing that really tipped me off was their hair. Woody's hairline and then McGonaghy's scraggly look. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for the hair, I still might think this all happened within two weeks instead of 17 years. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, McConaughey is definitely disheveled as all hell at this thing. Yeah, I so I have actually seen this show a couple times. For me, I do think it is a bit of a warm blanket show. Like, it is kind of nice to come back to these characters. And so I had forgotten about the timeline jumps and stuff. And so it takes you a second to kind of get used to what they're throwing at you. So yeah, the quote, the quote from Marty, which is Woody Harrelson's character, Martin Hart, is you don't pick your parents and you don't pick your partners. There are these cops that are interviewing him and Rust, Rustin, who's Matthew McConaughey's character. What did you think of the cops, Dan? What did you think the cops were trying to do in this episode? Well, it, it's funny that they seem to focus in on the two detectives individually. And I really liked the way that this was shot and kind of revealed through the course of the interviews because Woody's kind of got, or I guess Marty's got the blinds behind him and the bright light 
and it looks to be like, you know, a very, I don't know, open office setting. And then Rust has got like all this old equipment and it's dark and dingy. And the way that they reveal first that it's the same guys interviewing them both, and also that they're in the same room, just looking at the two different sides, I thought that was a cool play on the long, bright, dark, because the one half of the interview is bright and the other half seemed dark. And stylistically, I thought that was really cool. I don't know if anybody else saw it that way, but that was one of my impressions. Any thoughts on that, Jessica, as far as the cop interviewers? No thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's hard too. And so we'll probably be asking you a lot of questions, Dan, as somebody who hasn't seen it to kind of get that perspective and then more just get our reactions to to certain things. Yeah, I, I kind of felt like they were playing a bit of a cat and mouse game and both guys were trying to figure out what the the cops were trying to accomplish with their interviews. It seemed like Russ Cole picked up a lot earlier than Woody did or Marty on some of the angles they were trying to take. Like Russ Cole was pretty suspicious of them right away where it did take Marty a little bit longer before he started asking some of the same questions that Russ did. So Marty mentions that Rust is a strange guy. They called him the tax man. One quote that I liked is he said he'd pick a fight with the sky if he didn't like the shade of blue. As we see Matthew McConaughey, Russ Cole, he's smoking in the interview. They tell him he can't smoke and he starts ashing in a big hug mug. And then we see the timeline jump to January 3rd, 1990, which I think, is that what we find out was his daughter's birthday as well? Is that how they set this up? Either of you remember? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, know that, I know that the birthday is the same day as like the dinner, but I guess all this pretty much takes place in 1995 over the course of one day, right? Yeah, I was a little confused on the dinner timeline because of how they jumped around, but I thought the day of the, the murder, like this whole thing that's setting him off was because it was his daughter's birthday. So we find out this is their third big case. The first two were open and shut. They walk up on the crime scene. There was a girl tried to, a tree. She's in a prone position, naked, antlers on her head blindfold blindfold on hands are tied what did you think of the murder scene jessica either the first time you saw it or just oh, watching freaky. it again now freaky it definitely adds like the shock value to it yeah i was Scary. definitely yeah. uncomfortable watching it what were your thoughts dan on the crime scene i was getting confused if i was watching yellow jackets or not which <laughs> podcast am i doing here yeah that is interesting the old antler crown back again what did you think about our old company logo being a satanic symbol on her back, Dan? Somehow I didn't pick up on that. Um, yeah, she had one of those spiral circles on her back, which they did say was a satanic circle. Our old company that I owned and Dan worked for, Jessica, had like, it was like a spiral, spiral circle with a sun around it. So anyway, that was kind of interesting. Cole's did you guys work for Satan? Not answer that. <laughs> Cole was giving a pretty immediate breakdown of all of the cuts, almost like an instant autopsy. Did either of you guys have any reaction to seeing how quick Cole picked up like on all of the acute injuries and things like that? Yes, sexy and smart and great at his job. Dan? <laughs> Little less on the sexy, but, you know, it seems like he knows his shit, whereas Woody was, or I'm sorry, Marty was kind of just like yucking it up with the other guys. 
You can see where Rust is, I don't know, very dialed in and almost to the point where I was like wondering, is this character on the spectrum? Because he doesn't seem to have such a social game, but he's very analytical and dialed into those sorts of, you know, indicators. Yeah, and I think, you know, it shows possibly why they're a good team. Marty is much more slow and deliberate and by the book, whereas Rust is really going more on his gut and emotion and feel. And so I think they make a good team for those reasons, for sure. And then we see Rust also being like a profiler of sorts. And so Marty's kind of describing the different types of detectives that they can that that you can have. He's seen bullies, charmers, brains. Any of those can be a good detective or incompetent shit heel. But he does mention that Rust is smart. We find out that Rust's previous files are redacted. So early on, we don't really know what his background was in Texas before going to Louisiana, where this show is set. We find out that Russ doesn't have a current family. One of Marty's quotes is, past a certain age, a man without a family can be a bad thing. Uh, that stings a little. Russ calls him, calls the potential murderer uh, meta-psychotic. He was saying that this is going to happen again or it's happened before. There's a decent chance that she was a prostitute. We see Marty kind of fight back on some of his assumptions. What did you think of... Russ kind of profiling and making all these assumptions. Did you think a lot of them were going to be accurate, Dan, or what were your thoughts? Yeah, I actually felt pretty confident that Russ knew his stuff. Just And he seemed to take everything just a little bit more seriously. So, you know, I don't want him trailing my serial killings. That's for sure. Any additional thoughts from you, Jessica, besides smart and sexy? They mostly start and end there. No, he's definitely strikes me as a better cop than Marty. Marty is sort of like the one who just leads with his balls and uh, just does it for like the hero title rather than like to solve the crime. So this is where we kind of see that first. And, and I do think it's really weird how they intersperse the dinner scenes. But this is where we see kind of the first push from Marty that he's got to come, that Rust has got to come to dinner. He can't put it off anymore. We see kind of a set away quote from Russ saying that he knew he was going to have a drink with all of these things, the murder, the death of his daughter, all these things compounding in the dinner. And then we see him show up for the dinner drunk with flowers, but then they cut away from that. So I guess we'll get to the dinner scene when we get there. Were, was this disorienting for you at all watching it, Dan? As you know, they're like trying to go to a dinner, but you're not quite getting to that scene. What was your opinion of, of that? No, I just kind of took it as a tease. I know we're going to get there. So I don't mind the editing and jumping around a little bit. And I, I kind of feel for Rust a little bit in this. So I don't really want to see that Band-Aid ripped off right away. Yeah, I I didn't mind how they laid it out. I just think, Having finished the episode, and I've maybe watched this three times, I should have a better idea of what the timeline is. And it's still, I think it's all on the same day, but it's not super clear to me. I feel like that part should be clear. But other than that, I generally liked how it all cut around. So some of the funny, this is where we start to get some of the really, to me, funny, interesting, or you might call them Lincoln, Matthew McConaughey slash Russ Cole quotes. He was talking about how there's all kinds of gutters in the world, Marty. 
or that's what Marty said. And then he says, it's all one ghetto man, a giant gutter in outer space. There's parts where he talks about being a realist and a pessimist. He says that means he's bad at parties. Marty says you're not too good outside of parties as well. <laughs> and at one point after trying to get to know him, he says that, you know, you asked to know all this stuff. And he's and now I'm begging you to shut the fuck up. Jessica, what were your thoughts on like the dialogue in their car, the relationship of the two of them together? That was probably my favorite banter of the whole series, to be honest. It's like what I remembered the clearest. And I don't know, they're just funny. And then when he says, let's make the car a place for quiet reflection, (laughs) a silent reflection or whatever, and he's telling him to be quiet. Here, it reminded me of me with my husband. Dan, what were your thoughts on their interaction? You know, I'm kind of looking at Marty critically here because he sees who Rust is and it seems like, you know, he's a detective, but he still is trying to make Rust one of the guys. He wants so badly for him to fit in that he's trying to force it. And you would think that a cop or a detective would know, okay, this is who he is. I'm not going to change him. But it seems like the earnestness in his character is just, he really thinks he can make this happen, which kind of made me go, oh, come on, dude. When it is hard to kind of guess their ages here, because even in their young, younger ages in the show, it seems like they're a little older than they should be when you take their ages like later in the show, like in the 2005 versus 2012 timeline. So I don't know, are they in their early 30s, mid 30s? Are they in their 40s? But I guess it depends what stage of development they're in. But I guess you would excuse it from a younger cop. But at this point, these guys have families. You assume they're a little bit older. um, So maybe you're just expecting a little bit more, you know, maturity from them. So I don't really, I'm not super clear on their ages or, you know, it does seem like in the 2012 timeline, they've developed a little bit better as humans and matured a little bit. But yeah, for me, I just love the banter. This is not even remembering specifically these scenes in the show. This is the type of dialogue you love to come back to. Like I said earlier, a warm blanket type of thing. So it was cool just to be back in this world again. And I'd taken enough time away that, you know, it was still relatively new again for me. We see them asking, Rust asking what he should bring for dinner, like a bottle of, uh, Marty says a bottle of wine, I think not knowing that, you know, he has a drinking problem and or he's not drinking. We hear them in the, back at the station, a lot of the cops are starting to rumor about what happened and we hear some of them talking about the antlers or different things like that. And Russ Cole chimes in with, it was a crown. What did you think about, you know, either or both of you? I felt like maybe too many of the cops had too much information. I get that's probably what would happen with a situation like this. But with a crime this sensitive, you would think you would want a lot less information out there early. Did that send off a warning flag for any of you guys? Or what were your thoughts on so much of the information being spread in the police station? Go ahead, Jessica. Wait, why would that be a problem? I just think there's, too, you know, there's so many details that can get leaked to other people. Or if you've got a killer like that, maybe you want to hold a lot more details so people don't know there were deer antlers so you can identify. Well, I, I just, they don't have to know that there were antlers. I mean, you, I would just think you'd want to hold a little bit more of the crime details of the scene. Like later on, um, I think in episode two, 
they show one of the new crime scene photos that they haven't shown to anyone, and I don't think those details are out there to Russ Cole, the detectives in the current timeline. They were withholding some of that information, I think. So anyway, that, that was just my thoughts. What were your thoughts on some of the commotion going around the the police station, Dan? Well, one of the things that I'm figuring out just with this later series of interviews is that things didn't all go right way back in 1995. And so kind of the small town gossiping and maybe not tying up like chains of evidence and information really tight isn't that surprising to me. What it is, it's feeding that things weren't really too clean back when it was originally handled. And that's kind of why we're looking back on it now. So it's kind of helping emphasize the idea that I have that this is still an open wound. There's still more meat on the bone with this whole story. Yeah, it wasn't, and, and for me, it wasn't surprising. And you probably would expect that in these small town cases, but I don't know that it was like the best course of action. Have you seen Paradise Lost at all, Dan, the HBO documentary? No. And you have not seen that either, right, Jessica? No. So one, highly recommended, but it's like a three-part true crime series that started airing in the mid-90s. It was a similar crime to this, but it was with two little boys, which is more terrible, and it was real. But it was one of the more prominent early HBO true crime documentaries. And anyway, there's a lot of similarities between that case and this case, like some of the like satanic panic type stuff going on, poorly handled chains of evidence and things like that. So I just mentioned that now as it's hard to watch this show and specifically seeing some of the binding or different things that were perceived as satanic in that crime, repeating this crime. And it's hard to not think of that watching this show. So as we go further, Russ kind of mentions that everything's hitting him hard. He's driving out to a truck stop to start talk talking to some of the working girls. Did either of you guys see when he started drinking in his car? I'm assuming it was a small liquor bottle, but it looked like a Robitussin bottle or something to me. Did either of you guys notice that or see what that was? Yeah, I, I wasn't sure what it was. And hoping for the best, I was hoping it was just like milk of magnesia or something to like calm his nerves or something like that. Yeah, I wasn't sure, but it, I, I was thinking it was supposed to be alcohol, but it looked like it was like a, a medicine or something. So she has, he heads to the truck stop to talk to the working girls. He's asking them questions in the bar. Meanwhile, Marty is at home. He's drinking by himself. The kids are already in bed. What were your opinions of Marty's home life, Jessica? Like how he reacted around or acted around his wife and his kids? What were, you thought, what were your thoughts on Marty at home? I don't know. He seemed like a traditional dude who relies on his <laughs> wife to do everything around the home, like uh, a guest. <laughs> what were your thoughts on the Marty home life, Dan? At this point, there were like no screaming markers. They came soon thereafter, but you know, it it seemed like he's all tied up in his work and kind of neglecting um, a little bit and just in his head a little bit too yeah i think it was setting the stage for what we see later but i think on first watch it's not immediately alarming you know it's how nice he's checking in on his kids but what i do think the show does a good job of and what i took it more i think if i'm putting myself in like my first time watching the show is you see the effects that seeing this crime have on both russ and marty 
you know, and so we can, as a viewer, have a critically opinion of how they react to the, these things. But in real life, in real time, if you're seeing things like this, it's going to have a significant impact on you. And I think the show does a pretty good job of showing that for sure. Back at the bar, we see one of the girls. He's interviewing the girls. They ask, what kind of tits did she have? He says, a little larger than yours. Ouch. Medium. <laughs> he says, I wouldn't bust someone for hooking or drugs. I'm murder police. He kind of separates the two gals, stays with the blonde one, and starts asking her for quaaludes because he doesn't sleep. What were your initial thoughts on that, Dan, kind of seeing this first potential um bad i don't know if bad is the right word but like the breaking bad side of rust yeah i had two thoughts okay he's not really working he's just trying to get a a drug source and then the other thing was like i thought quaaludes they stopped manufacturing like 14 years prior to this yeah so i would like a timeline check on my drug history because i don't know if that's like quaaludes were hard to find for john belushi in 83 really so uh, redneck detective in 95 it just seems pretty rare he was asking for the old cosby special in the middle <laughs> of louisiana so marty's wife wakes up marty fell asleep in the living room he mentions i was caught up in a bad one yesterday it looks like he he's late to getting to the briefing and stuff he's supposed to be in charge of the briefing i think to the other cops and or the press conference so he kind of rushes out of the house. As he's walking into the police station, we hear that the lady who was killed is identified as Dora Kelly Lang. She was at one point busted for solicitation. So that does back up what Russ Cole tagged her on, which was a prostitute or, or at least partial prostitute. They start going through the autopsy. They find out that she had crystal and LSD in her system. She was drugged, bound, tortured, strangled, posed. There were no prints on anything. At one point for some of the symbols, they recommend maybe getting an anthropologist. Russ mentions that the murder was iconic. Marty said that he thought it was personal. And Russ mentioned that the nature of the murder was actually more impersonal mentions the blindfold as a primary reason for that. As you were watching that unfold, um, Jessica, did you think that was more of a personal murder or an impersonal murder? Personal. Dan, what were your thoughts on it? I thought impersonal because Dora is really an explorer. And okay. I, I think we need to have Swiper on our list of suspects. Swiper. What is, what is Swiper? Oh, did you never watch Dora the Explorer? Yeah, how do you not know that? <laughs> oh my gosh. Get some culture, Jesus. Is that the like monkey? Does she have a monkey? Oh, she has a map. She's a bag? What swiper? Just he, he's a monkey, isn't he? I thought he was like a fox. Or yeah, like a yeah, he, some sort he of he sneaks up, wears a mask, he steals shit. I don't know if he does ritual killings, but we can't rule it out at this point. Yeah, I thought that it definitely made sense as an impersonal crime just because, you know, she was blindfolded. It didn't, there weren't a lot of fine attacks. Yeah, she was bound and stuff, but she wasn't stabbed 80 times or something like that. And I was immediately, you're wondering if they're like, if she's taking the drugs or if the drugs were forced on her, you know, that kind of stuff is going into my head early. 
in the current timeline, we find out that Marty is a private investigator. I think he's doing some security on the side. What other note on the prior thing when he was talking about it, and it, it being iconic and stuff like that? We got Marty again saying, stop saying shit like that. Stop saying odd shit, which I did think was funny. They interview a pastor at the church. They bring some of these drawings of, there were like little twig bindings on the murder scene. And then obviously the satanic picture. So as they bring that to the pastor at the church, he mentions that the twig things are called bird traps. Um, and they're supposed to catch the devil before it gets too close. Had you ever heard or seen bird traps before, Dan? Is that something you were aware of? No, that's brand new for me. Like the symbolism seemed very fitting for the the type of thing, but I wasn't familiar with the bird traps. I guess it's like a dream catcher for evil. Yeah, definitely seemed like that. I think I've seen them in like the Blair Witch Project, but not really familiar with bird traps. Is that something you were familiar with, Jessica? No, too witchy for me. You didn't learn about any of those when you visited your local goth bars in the Rochester area? You know what? I bet you anything you go there right now, you're going to find someone who'd be like, they could tell you all about those. So one thing that kind of comes up in all of this is the, I'm going to pronounce it wrong probably, but like the Fountaineau girl who went missing, somehow her file was missing or incomplete. They talked to Sheriff Tate about her file that's pretty incomplete. She says there was a complaint about a girl that was chased through the woods with a green-eared spaghetti monster. And they kind of had the picture of the green-eared spaghetti monster. And the sheriff also says that girl went with her father. So that's why there wasn't a lot of information in the file. What did you think of Russ Cole's beer request, Dan? One, I think he was asking for some old Milwaukee. I don't think that's what he got. He's, is Lone Star real beer? No, I it's did. not. I, I looked it up. Really? Wait, I really don't think it is. Oh, shit. Maybe it is. I'm pretty sure I looked that up back when I watched it forever ago. I thought I saw some chatter that maybe it's not around now, but that um, they actually were, somebody was impressed that they were able to get like the labels and branding that was equivalent of that time. But it's probably I mean, like an old Texas beer or like national beer, but. I would assume popular in Texas, maybe. It made me want to go hang out in a police station if they're going to allow you to drink during interviews, which I think would be a way to get, you know, a little bit better detail with some loose lips on the Lone Star. Yeah, well, he did say that he's he mentioned something about them worried about it being like animus because of the alcohol, maybe. But he says on his off days, he starts drinking at noon and basically he's going to start drinking at noon. So... One interesting part of that dynamic with that interview was you see that he knows he has power and that they're desperate to keep him there and ask him, like, with the smoking, like, he's very often going, what are you going to do, kick me out? You need me worse than I need you. It it seems like he's aware of his power in the dynamic. It's a real beer. I was wrong. Any Um, other facts you want to show share with us about Lone Star while you're there? Okay, yeah, the name is owned by Pabst, and production of Lone Star is currently contracted out to Miller Brewing Company in Fort Worth, according to Wikipedia. Her ex, who's a prisoner, um, 
did she say oh being like on the meth the weed the juice she mentions that her friend carla had said that she was all high and she became a nun in meta king what were your opinions on dora's ex dan you know about what i would expect and one thing i was trying to figure out at this point in time and with the sheriff interview is like logistically i'm not really familiar with louisiana and i just kind of assume all cops are the same so when they go and talk to the sheriff i'm wondering did they have to drive 50 miles to get here is it a different jurisdiction is one county in one state those are a lot of the questions where I was just trying to absorb a lot of it all. There's another, maybe it's in the second episode where they're like driving around lost. And I'm thinking, you know, if you guys have lived here, you should know your way around. So maybe this is how I'm learning, like how the bayou works. But just from a location standpoint, I was really disoriented. Yeah, well, I think that specifically to what you're talking in the second episode, I think is kind of when they're looking for the like, the make-believe like brothel in the middle of nowhere and russ got those instructions i think more than marty did and russ has only been there a couple years and they don't really know where it is so that i can kind of understand them being a little more lost but i do agree that i don't really have a good feel for how close this shit is together or not there are some things that i'm not even sure you know, I'm assuming a lot of these things are real, but there's a scene where Russ sees like the missing girl sign. And I don't know if he was like seeing his daughter in that picture, if that was like a real missing girl or he sees like the one little missing girl on the side of the road. And, and we do see there's some other scenes with Russ specifically later where he's definitely having some sort of like hallucinations and visions too. So that that part disoriented me a little as far as what we're seeing is, you know, what if that is real or not real or whatever. Any opinions on your side, Jessica, on that Dora's ex-boyfriend in prison? Remind me, remind you of any of your past flings? Yeah, most of my prison pen pals that have turned to lovers. Um, but <laughs> no, I think that, I don't know, just when you start hearing the same story from several people, you start to question, was she high? How high was she? But obviously she was a little high because everyone was like, she was definitely high. Is there like a joke, like how high was she? And then you have one. No, I'm just like, even if you're high, like you can still be saying something that's meaningful. I do think there's got to be something to, you know, there's some of these religious connotations. Like she talks about becoming a nun, meta king. Like there's enough of those contextual clues that something's weird is going on. We see the Marty and Russ cold dinner. Russ shows up. He can barely stand up. He finally tells Marty, I don't drink because I've had trouble with it before. He was checking on a CI at the bar, which is confidential informant, for those of you wondering. And he couldn't think of a reason not to drink. Um, so Marty's getting him coffee. He told him he'll try to get them out of there in 10 minutes. He brought flowers. Marty, when he's talking to the interviewers, mentioned how that was kind of funny. What were your thoughts now that we're at the dinner scene, Dan, on how smashed he was showing up would you let him come in and talk to your daughters if he was smashed like that what were your thoughts on that yeah it was kind of cringy with the anticipation but in the reality you kind of see to me like rust's mind switch as like the whole setting is for them to get to know him but it seems almost at the same time he's getting to know 
well, the wife especially, but the family and learn about Marty by extension. It's almost like he seems to sober up kind of quick, even though he's talking some nonsense. But it made me wonder, so in his interview 17 years later, is he more there kind of in a similar parallel situation learning about the guys that are interviewing him? So that was just my thought. No, those are interesting, interesting points and thoughts. Jessica, what were your thoughts on him showing up drunk? Would you let him come in and meet Gary Jr. and Eleanor in that condition? No, I wouldn't. Just, I'd be like, dude, go home, sleep it off. We'll do it another night. You've already bailed like so many times. I guess like another time doesn't actually matter. My wife's just nagging me. Right. And he told him to bring a bottle of wine. So did he drink that? Like, why did he bring flowers? Yeah, I'm not sure. What I will say is I do agree with Dan in that he rallied really well. So if I saw how he was at dinner, I would have been like, that's okay. But like he the way have he wouldn't even gotten in the door. With yeah, me. I been I'm, like... I'm not sure he would have got in the door with me either. But once he was in there, he settled in pretty well. I will say that for people that think a lot, sometimes alcohol slows us down a bit. So I know for me at business meetings, my parents almost always tell me to go drink ahead of time just because it, you know, makes me a little more relatable. So I don't know if maybe that helps with Russ Cole, just kind of slow him down a bit too, but not as much when you have a serious drinking problem. The little girls ask if he ever has fired a gun. He says he has. We find out he's from Texas and he grew up in Alaska I bring this up now. I don't think this is a spoiler, but season four is supposed to be set in Alaska. So I am wondering if there's going to be any tie-ins there. That's kind of the first clue that we have. And for reference purposes for you, Dan, just because you're new, and if anybody doesn't want to hear this, skip ahead 30 seconds. We'll give you about five seconds to skip ahead. So each season is a totally different season, Dan. None of them relate to each other. So I don't think any of this is like a spoiler, but I just don't know. For any of our listeners, but this is so, so in theory, you think season four has nothing to do with any of the other seasons, but we do get two mentions of Alaska in these first two episodes, which leads me to believe there's got to be a tie in somewhere. Maggie asks if his likes his job. He says, not exactly. She says, not married, once, not anymore. Somehow during this time, Marty walks away to try to get him off the call. He mentions that he had, she asked about children. He says, one, she passed. Marriage didn't last long after that. When he walks away to take the call, his wife asks, what do you know about him, Morty? Or Marty, he says, not a lot, uppity. And then he says, trust me, you do not want to pick this man's brain. What were your thoughts just on the wife's conversation with Rust, Jessica? I think that... It probably felt good for her that someone was actually like opening up to her and whatever because she can't even get her own husband to talk to her. And also, I don't know, he must have felt comfortable with her because he told her way more than he's told Marty so far. And I kind of want to know like how his kid died. I don't think I remember from last time. So I know he says that she was on and riding her bike in the driveway, which was on a bend. Did someone else hit her? Did he hit her? Who hit her? I think it was a drunk driver and oh, did it say that? Like, I think they like blamed each other for it. I think that comes up in episode two or something close to that. Oh, okay. 
What were your thoughts on their interactions, Dan, more with him and the wife? I know you touched on it a little bit earlier, but as we get further. Yeah, like I wouldn't say that like it was a sparks fly situation, but they actually seem to have a very effortless conversation, which, you know, you've got Rust who seems to have a hard time talking to anybody and the wife just having a natural interest without any agenda, without any politics you know, it, it seemed to be the easiest interaction that Rust has had. He didn't seem terrible interacting with the kids either. Like it, it didn't seem like answering their questions or stuff. It wasn't like, oh, this guy shouldn't be around children. It seemed more like he had a daughter. He's dealt with, you know, small girls before. This is a familiar situation to him. So as we jump back to the current timeline, we kind of see... And this is where I didn't know, and I'm definitely going to play this perspective from having not seen it before, because I don't specifically know or remember. So I'm really coming at this blind for both the purposes of the show and myself. But this is where I felt like it seemed like the cops were trying to pick them apart separately, because he started to ask about, it sounds like they went bad in about 02. Uh, Marty says people change, relationship change. He says he hasn't talked to Russ in about 10 years, but he says he was a good detective. It doesn't matter how we ended. Did you think they were trying to create a separation between them, Dan, or how did you read that? No, I just thought that was part of the history that they would almost be obligated. Do you still talk to him? What's your relationship now? And that's just kind of like dangling a carrot for me as a viewer. Okay, so I want to know how they went wrong. And eventually, I'm sure I'll find out. For sure. So we see Reverend Tuttle, who's doing like a statewide charity drive. He's the governor's brother. I think the governor is Eddie Tuttle. They start discussing an anti-Christian crimes task force. What was your take on that, Jessica? Do you think they need an anti-Christian crimes task force? No, I think that's ridiculous. (laughs) And I mean... Yeah, the timeline doesn't seem clear how long they've been looking into the case, but I would think with Russ on the case, they shouldn't worry about that because he is making headway on the case. So I don't know. Did you have any reaction to that, Dan? You can see a little pressure building, like there's some sensationalism about this sort of thing, and you could see them in episode two as well, being pressured to get results. And, you know, if ultimately the wrong person was put away, you know, this clamoring for some closure and letting everybody sleep peacefully, that that seems to be where they're leading. And around this scene, we get the introduction of Lisa, which is Alexandra Daddario's character. Mm-hmm. She, so, she shows up to get some depositions, much more on her later. Referencing some of the screenshots that Jessica sent me earlier this morning. But Um, I I did notice right away, Marty doesn't move fast for anything. He's a very slow going, easy, southern paced guy. But man, he jumps out of that chair and runs to the front. It was my first observations and I drew a note. And I was thinking that would be something they would wait to develop. But uh, no... They smashed right through that in episode two. Yeah, I was curious, you know, how how you would catch that on first watch. I will say that I probably would move pretty quickly as well. So good for him. (laughs) So 
they start <gasps> checking on the Fontenot daughter again. I think they find the Fontenot's family. The uncle who played baseball is there. Did I take a note? What did he seem to have? Was it like Lou Gehrig's disease or something? Or like, like ALS or something? Yeah. Is that are those the same thing? Or are no? they? Yes, they are. Someone <laughs> um, did the ice bucket challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so they start asking about the missing girl from 10 years back. They were kind of asking about the birth father, which it seemed like they were kind of unclear about the birth father. And then no one's heard of the bar- birth father or the niece since. At the mom's been like at the casinos or something like that. Is that generally what you caught from that, Dan? You know, honestly, as first watch, there I see them doing interviews and I couldn't actually track what were Fontenot-related interviews and what were Dora-related interviews. So hearing you reveal this is, oh, geez, I guess I probably should have caught that. But I just figured they're doing detective stuff and I didn't look at it. And unless I was taking show notes, I'm not sure I would have even put it together as well as I did. But I did notice when they were talking, I think about the charity, they started talking about the font or maybe when they're talking to the sheriff, they're talking about the Fontenot girls, uncle playing baseball. And so... Anyway, I had made a note on that, and so then I hear Fontenot again, and then it's, oh, that's the uncle that played baseball, and it just seems like the chain of custody of the girl is a little unclear for the file that they buried is how I'm kind of putting this all together for now. So we see Russ Cole kind of wandering around the property, and what you saw or said earlier, which is like Marty is talking to the family, kind of trying to be friendly with them, and Russ just starts rain-manning around the property, <laughs> and he finds one of those bird traps in the old playhouse, were you surprised at all, Dan, that a bird trap like that would be there for 10 years? I thought he was going to find one of the Strangers Things kids in there is what I was expecting <laughs> to pop out. Yeah, um, I would have thought maybe like a symbol or something, but I would think that thing would blow out of that open trailer. Well, and again, so maybe this is what made me have a hard time figuring out which which victim we're interviewing because I associated the bird trap with the most recent with Dora. And so I thought some of their interviewing might be related to that. And I didn't even pick up on the Fontenot part of it. Yeah. So what we're to assume here is this Fontenot girl who disappeared had been that this bird trap was in her old playhouse. What did you think of the bird trap being there? Any other thoughts on the Fontenot family, Jessica? scary doesn't it give you chills i also thought that it was related to the first murder but um, yeah no that's like creepy yeah now they start talking to russ cole i think this is where they show the new murder to him and he says they say how could it be him if we already caught him in 1990 then start asking the right fucking questions so to me i felt like they were almost starting to get accusatory of russ cole they were asking, what I was thinking too. Because they were asking like a lot of questions about his process and they're showing him this new murder. Allegedly, are you picking up, Dan? Because the contextual clues that they're giving in the show is that allegedly they solved a version of this crime and now there's new crimes that are reappearing. Is that kind of what you were catching? I am catching that. I didn't necessarily pick up on these new detectives having their sights set on Rust because we've seen through the flashbacks how diligent he is in doing this. So that automatically disqualified him to me, but not necessarily looking at it from the new detective's point of view. I thought they were just digging into like questions about his character. So I'm like, why are you asking about him? 
Yeah, and, and the way I was kind of taking it is if they already caught the murder and these murder symbols are reappearing and he's such a weirdo, like, I just felt like they were asking a lot of questions in that direction. And so, um, you know, once again, the, the episode ends with him saying, then start asking the right fucking question. So that's end of episode one. Any final thoughts on episode one, Dan, on your end? As far as episodes one go and, you know, the cop buddy detective genre and things like that, I found it solid like a B, but I was really impressed, like I mentioned earlier, with just the way it was shot. The opposite interviews between Marty and Rust and the light in the dark or the bright in the dark, like contrast there, that really stood out to me as like a stylistic move. And that was something that, you know, I gave a thumbs up. So gun to your head, one to 10, first episode, what do you give it? 7.7. Okay, Jessica, I liked it more than him. I thought it was an eight. I thought it was really good. They did a really good job of introducing people. I think with the two timelines, they were able to do that really well. And I thought it was just like a really good introduction episode. Honestly, really long. The first two episodes were so long, but, but they packed a lot into them. Yeah, I think, I guess I'll give it an 8.7. I loved I, it. I wanted to give it a nine. I mean, I think my initial reaction and then seeing yours, you guys are like hedging me down a bit, but I think it's- oh, Wait, I, I kind of agree. I was thinking earlier today, Craig's going to ask me this and I'm going to give it a nine because I really like it. And then I know later on what I'm going to give a 10 to, but I won't, no spoilers. Say, it. I won't say it. <laughs> yeah. Um, in in all fairness, I watch a lot of trash. So that weighs down my scale a lot lower, I think. Maybe I have that backwards, actually. But you, it just wasn't trashy enough for you. Well, no, I just think there's more junk on the bottom end if I'm like, Rating it not just against stuff I watch, but all the stuff that's out there. I don't know. We're going to see more junk on the top and bottom end in episode two. Let me tell Ooh, you. Somebody's seeing things. <laughs> so that Someone has a new background on his phone. <laughs> good idea. Uh, so speaking How of episode. say her name? Dario. Yeah, I'm going to be right back. Don't look at my Alexandra Dario body when I get up. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Prestige-ish Media Podcast. In this episode, we covered True Detective Season 1, Episode 1, The Long Bright Dark. I was your host for this episode, Craig Lake. Co-hosting with me this episode was Jessica Z and Dan McNair. You can find our show at Prestigious Media on Instagram and Prestige underscore ish on X. You can find me at Real Real Batman on both. You can find Jessica Z at Jobless Dog Mom and Dan McNair at Dan McNair 1017, both on Instagram. We hope you will join us for coming episodes as we cover True Detective season one through three on the way to the season four premiere on January 14th on HBO, which we will also be covering. Thank you again for listening. If you can, please like and subscribe our podcast on all your favorite platforms, and we hope you will join us again for another episode soon. So I'm trying to follow the link, and I'm thinking because I don't have an account, that's why I can't share a video. Let's just discuss the ending right now so I don't ruin it later. Whoa.